Well, one of the towering intellects of our time uh, is a guy whose name, I'm going to guess, many of us may not yet know, by the name of Michael Walzer. Michael Walzer. Walzer is 88 years old now, at my dad's age, actually. And um, Walzer is a Jewish man uh, who went to Harvard University, Cambridge University in England, and Brandeis Universities, and rose over the years to become one of the most prominent political theorists and public intellectuals of our time. Uh, he worked for a number of years at the, uh, as a faculty member at, at Princeton University's famous Institute for Advanced Studies. That's the genius think tank where Albert Einstein uh, did some of his significant work. And when I was a student at Princeton, many, many moons ago, I used to drive past the Institute for Advanced Study just hoping to soak in some of those brain waves. And it, and it made no difference. I never got smarter. Uh, but um, Michael Walzer, super smart guy. And the reason why I even mention him today is because he's a huge fan of this book that we are studying in this season, the book of Exodus. Listen to what Walzer says about Exodus, because he wants to point out that from his vantage point, there are at least three huge helpful truths that you can draw from the study of the story of God's working with his people in, in ancient times. The first thing he says, wherever you live, the first lesson is, wherever you live, it's probably Egypt. And he means that sort of in a euphemistic or symbolic sense, that all of us have our, our Egypt experiences. And if you have been part of this study, then you know that the, that the Egypt experience for the children of Israel was a really difficult one. It was a time of bondage and oppression. All of us have these moments in our, time, our life, maybe sometimes whole seasons, maybe our whole journey, where we're under so much pressure, we're overburdened, we're asked to, to, to perform uh, more than it is reasonable to ask us to perform. We're under-resourced for what it is we, we would love to be able to do. We just don't have the capacity to do it. And, and, and people hold us to unrealistic expectations, and we feel the weight of all this in a terrible way. Some of you are in Egypt right now. You're feeling that kind of experience, life right now. And like the Israelites of old, you're crying out to God, get me out of here. Get me free of this somehow. That's one of the values of this book. It's a reminder to us that we're not the first people to, to have to go through the difficulty of living in some form of Egypt. The second um, great truth or life lesson from the book of Exodus, Walzer says, is that, is that there are periods when we will dare to believe that there's an answer to that prayer, get me out of here. And that the answer is even better than we would have hoped for because the answer is not just to get us out of here, it's to take us to a really great place, a much better kind of place, a promised land in a sense, uh, an, an environment, a, a kingdom, a manner of life more beautiful than we even dare to imagine and for which our heart does nonetheless long. Uh, and maybe you're in that place right now where you just... You just need to be reminded, there, there may be, there's a way, there, there's a future beyond this. Don't stop hoping for it. Don't stop hoping for it. Take small steps in that direction. Dare to believe there's a God who makes a way where we see there is no way. And, and, and just understand 
that he cares about that aspiration. He has that aspiration for you too. And then thirdly, says Walzer, Exodus teaches us that the way to that land is probably through the wilderness. It's probably not just a, a, a quick cutoff on the highway of life. It's, it's through a, a winding journey. And whether your goal one day is to arrive at a really fantastic character or a really a wonderful career or a terrific marriage or a great family life, whatever your goal might be out there, you can expect that it's gonna, it's gonna be a difficult journey. It's gonna be a journey of many steps to get to that particular place. And along the way, you're gonna get tested and you're gonna get tempted and you're gonna also get tempered, which is to say you're gonna be made more resilient and strong and prepared for that future. And, and just knowing this, that life is like this, knowing this at the beginning, saves us a lot of, of, of fruitless disappointment later on when we wonder, why is my life hard? Well, it's gonna be a journey through the wilderness for all of us. I would add a fourth truth to Walzer's list. I would say that eventually, in that journey, you must meet the mountain. You must meet the mountain. Or more properly, you must reckon with the holy God that gets signified or symbolized in the Exodus story at, at a great mountain. So when we left the Exodus story last week, uh, the children of Israel had made their way out of Egypt they had gone through the Red Sea. They had wandered through the Arabian Desert, and they were now, now at the base of a mountain. Uh, they were encamped at the base of a very famous place called Mount Sinai. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that, Mount Sinai, even if it was just a hospital called Mount Sinai. <laughs> We've all heard of that. This place was not just a brief stop on the family road trip. They didn't stop there to you know, hit the restrooms. Uh, this was actually an ongoing encampment for like 38 years at the base of this mountain. It's like God really wanted the Israelites to learn something right there before he took them further towards the promised land. In fact, it might have been something they needed to learn there that would enable them to make more of the promised land when they got there. So what was it? What was it? Why did God leave them there in that place? Well, we learned part of the point last week when, when Tracy described the amazing proposal that God makes to his people there. And if you were not here to hear Tracy's message on this or Mark's message on the other side of our house, do go back and listen to these incredibly helpful messages about the heart of God for, for his people. But, but, but in a nutshell, God says, now if you obey me fully and you keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Out of all nations. And although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, We've come to call this little arrangement, this relationship that God is talking about here, the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, throughout the uh, Old Testament, uh, we are given uh, introductions to these uh, descriptions of the kind of relationship God wants with people 
that are covenantal, meaning that, that it involves things God will do and things that people will do. And there's an Adamic covenant in the Garden of Eden, and there's a, an Abrahamic covenant, and there's a, a Davidic covenant, and there's eventually one day a new covenant, a new covenant in Jesus Christ. But this is the Mosaic covenant. God is basically saying, look, here's the deal. The whole earth is mine. I could be talking to bazillions of other people right now. But I'm talking to you, Israel. I'm talking to you because you are special to me and I want a special relationship with you. And, 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 and my plan is to, is to bless you more than you could possibly imagine and bless other people through you more than you can see right now. And I want to set you apart. I want to consecrate you I want to set you apart as a very special people. And then God goes on and kind of gives them two clues as to what that special role will be. He said, I want you to have an outsized spiritual influence on history. You will be a priestly people. You You will affect the course of religion in civilization. And secondly, I want you to be a holy nation. You will be a holy nation, meaning that you, that you will be a nation set apart, an unusual nation, a nation that endures where many nations do not endure. And we have seen that to be true. Even as our, the Middle East is racked with so much pain and loss right now, um, that that nation has somehow endured. And God wants them to be a creative spiritual influence. So this is this vision that that we get in the Mosaic Covenant. Here, however, God says, is what's needed from your side. I will do all of these things, but here's what you need to do. Obey me fully. Obey me fully. Do not turn this life with me into sort of a buffet belief system where I pick a little of this, I pick a lot. I'll stay away from that instruction. I won't do that one. No, I I disagree with it. I don't like that destruction. I'll take this instruction. Obey me fully. This is what discipleship in every generation requires, a a living into into the commandments and the vision of God. Jesus would go on to say, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Um, Same idea right here. Obey me fully and keep the covenant. Keep your side of this deal, the promises that I am going to ask of you. I love the, the, the comparison that Tracy and Mike, uh, Mark rather, gave last week to this conversation and a promposal or, a, uh, or the kind of proposals we make around uh, uh, marriage times because this is actually a beautifully tender moment if you think about it. Uh, God is in effect going down on one knee. Uh, God is offering Israel all of the goodness that he has to give them, and he has a lot to give them. He's saying in effect to Israel, will you be mine? Will you enter into this kind of relationship with me? And in saying this, God is opening himself up to the possibility of rejection. I remember the day when I asked Amy to marry me. Uh, And by the way, nothing wrong with Amy and me. I just lost my wedding ring on the golf course. Um, I need to fix that, I know. But um, I remember the day I asked her, and, uh, and she, um, 
you know, I had this sense she's probably going to say yes. Uh, but when I went down on that knee and I made the ask, I was trembling. I mean, I was just trembling. Uh, because I knew there was always the possibility that I wouldn't get the answer I was looking for. And so when God makes the ask, he knows. Israel could say no. Uh, they could say, no, we'll choose these, these other idols that are out there. Israel could say, well, let me think about that. I'll, I'll get back to you in a week or two. Or, or how about we negotiate the terms, that whole obey me fully thing, God? I mean, how about if we, we obey you mostly? Are we good with that? They could try and renegotiate the deal. Or they could slide out the prenup. Yeah, we're all in until you let us down. And then we're out of this thing, God. But God takes the risk. He drops to the knee. He makes the ask. And later on in history, just because people are kind of forgetting his heart, he comes all the way down from eternity and takes a knee again in the person of Jesus Christ. And when the world is wondering, God, do you love us? Do you care for us? He says, yeah, this much. I do. I do love you. This, friends, is one of the most important ideas in the whole Bible and, and is definitely a big idea in the book of Exodus, and that is that God is loving. God is loving. God is so loving. Now, we say that. I know we say God is love. You know, it's, it's, it's this great idea. It gets talked about almost like, you know, God is blue or, you know, God, you know, this is just God's nature. He just is that way. You know, we, we talk about it very blithely. Um, but God's outstretched hand of love or anybody's for that matter, is never to be taken for granted. You know, it really is something that we should remember is always an act of voluntary vulnerability. Like he doesn't have to do it. He chooses to do it. As I was thinking about that, I thought, wow, who else in my life is, is, is voluntarily and vulnerably showing me love, and I'm taking that for granted. I need to say thank you for that. Who in your life is just continuing to reach out to you in love in all kinds of different expressive ways that you might say thank you to today? Um, it is awesome whenever someone chooses to truly love us and express it. But to have God, the God of the universe, love us is just a wow. Um, and not just to love us once, but, just to, but, to, but to keep on loving us. You know, moment by moment, the very molecules of our lives, the very forces that hold us together, that keep the universe going, this is an act of God's love for the world and for, for you and for me. Maybe this idea starts to sink into the children of Israel at this point in the story. Um, maybe they're really starting to get this. 
Uh, they're blown away by the love of God. Hey, he got them out of Egypt. He took them through the, West, the, through the Red Sea. He's, he's, he's having this conversation through Moses with them now, declaring his love. Uh, maybe they were a bit like some of us were when we stood at the altar and said, I do, I promise, I will. Or when we said, hey, let's have babies, let's have kids. Maybe we, the people of Israel here, are like we have been at times where we enter into a covenant Never knowing what this is going to demand of us. Never knowing what love would require of us. But God knew what his great love for humanity would require. And he entered in anyway. And he committed himself to people. And in this profound story, we get a vision of this. The Bible says that the people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. We are all in, Israel said. And so Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And then what follows right after this, the rest of chapter 19 of Exodus is, is just nothing short of wild. Um, God doesn't at this point throw a big party. Um, he doesn't whisk Israel away on a honeymoon, uh, you know, transport them like this to the promised land uh, to celebrate what's just happened. Instead, through Moses, God does a set of things that are just really bizarre in some respects. They, or they, at least they seem so on the surface of things. And, and the first thing he does is, is issue a set of commands that involve purification. Purification. I quote, And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. And, and the word under, around consecration suggests, you know, a ritual washing. Um, get them ready for the encounter, for a deeper encounter with me. Consecrate them today and tomorrow. And then he goes on and says, have them wash their clothes. I don't want them just clean the hands. Clean their clothes, and not just their clothes. Have them abstain for the next couple of days from all sexual relations. He's sort of like drilling home this notion of, of, of purifying themselves for him. And then God instructs Moses to institute some serious measures of protection. And I quote again. He says, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. For whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. Warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them therefore perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, must not assume that they're pure enough, but must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. And then all of this is to prepare for an encounter with God that includes some major pyrotechnics. On the morning of the third day, we're told, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. 
Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently, the text says. Do you remember the scene in The Wizard of Oz where Dorothy and her three companions are going down the long hall towards the throne room of Oz? And they come through the door and there's suddenly noise and smoke and fire and the face of the great Oz says, I am Oz, the great Oz. And, you know, and then it just proceeds to just rip them apart. He tells the, the, the tin man he's just a bucket of bolts. He tells the, the cowardly lion that, that, that he's, the, he's the worst kind of creature he's ever seen. He just, he just kind of goes on like this. The, uh, the scarecrow is just a bag of straw. You know, he, he's just so hard on them. This is not what this show of power is about at all. He's not doing this to, to scare the Israelites away from him. He's preparing them to have a real relationship with who he is, with who he really is. So if you, if you ask the question, why this call to purification, why this call to protection, why all these pyrotechnics, why all this heavy stuff immediately on the heels of this tender proposal, that God has just given to them and to which they've said yes, I think it is because God is trying to tell Israel, and by extension, all of us who are trying to follow after God today, I think he's trying to tell them and us something crucial about himself and about the nature of relationship with him. I think God wants us to appreciate that while God is so loving, he is also so truly holy. Holy. Holy, holy, holy. So the word holy, let's just admit this, has fallen into disuse and probably abuse in our time. When it's used, it's often employed as in holy roller or holier than thou. For many people, the very word holy suggests sort of a pinched face, sphincter-clenched, diminished, sanctimonious state of being. You know, we used to say in the olden days of SNL, uh, like the church lady, um, Dana Carvey's church lady. This is really sad because the biblical understanding of holiness, it's like not like that. It is so much more interesting and, and compelling and attractive than this. Uh, properly understood, holiness implies the absence of sin, an abundance of the opposite of sin, which is good fruit, things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, generosity, faithfulness, self-control, courage, humility, justice, all of the attributes of the character of God, the absence of sin, the abundance of good fruit, all-out dedication or consecration, commitment, and absolute power. Incredible power. I wish I had time to unpack each of these particular uh, dimensions of holiness. I actually, I wrote a, a, a chapter in a book about this. The book is Leadership Essentials. It's the first chapter of the book. 
And it's about not only what holiness really is, but how Jesus is the supreme illustrator of it for us. Um, so don't go to the bookstore because I'm told we don't have any more of those books. You can find them elsewhere. So maybe you can see here how the call to purification, protection, and all these pyrotechnics are sort of helpful potentially in helping a primitive people, and the Israelites are pretty primitive at this point, start to understand the concept of holiness. Uh, just it's the beginning of a much longer life lesson around this subject. Why do you need to clean yourself up? Because God's really pure. Why do you need to protect yourself about just you know, running in to, this, to, the, to an encounter with this God? Because this God, this God's nature is so brilliant, so magnificent. It could like incinerate sinful people if, 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 that, if there wasn't a buffer of grace. While this smoke and fire and shaking earth, it's, it's a visual and an auditory and a sensory aid that God is great, transcendent, amazingly powerful. And, and I can only imagine how, how all of this, coming again on the heels of this tender moment, you know, really shook the Israelites up and kind of maybe disturbed them and wondered, what are we getting ourselves into here? And that was intentional. He wanted to disturb them. Like I think God wants to disturb some of us so that we think more deeply about who it is we are invoking. When we come to church, when we offer prayer, when we, when we look for God, he wants us to understand the fullness of who he really is. David Wells is an author and he says, A God with whom we are on easy terms and whose reality is little different from our own reality. And think how you, often people talk about, oh, Jesus is my friend. I'm going to talk to the, man up, the big man upstairs. You know, I mean, we're, we're acting like we're just like, God is just like a little, bit, a little bit mightier, a little bit bigger than us, right? A God that we're thinking of this way, um, says Wells, who's merely there to satisfy our needs, has no real authority in our lives. He has no real ability to compel uh, change from us. And he will soon begin to bore us. The problem in the world today is not that people don't think God is loving. The problem in the world today, the reason why people don't follow him, is they have stopped believing he's holy. They've lost a vision <laughs> for how big and great and glorious and beautiful is this God. So, there's nothing boring about the holy God that meets us in the wild story of Exodus. And until we, I think, understand God's holiness more fully, we will always have this tendency to settle for too little in our concept of God. We'll tend to settle too little for too little in our treatment of other people who are made in God's image, because if we really got that, they've been made in God's image, it would alter the way we come at them, and we will tend to expect to, or even dream too little, for ourselves. <sighs> and for all that he can do and wants to do in our lives. To illustrate that, I, you know, I, I want to tell you um, a, a little story. Author 
Paul David Tripp um, describes making a trip to the city of Dubai in the Middle East. And, and he was going through the, the, the city and he wound up at the foot of the kind of the ultimate mountain. He wound up at the foot of a, of a building called the Burj Khalifa. Do you know any, some of you have maybe even been to the Burj Khalifa, right? It is the tallest man-made structure in history and on earth today. It is over half a mile tall, the Burj Khalifa. And um, David Tripp um, gets into the elevator. Paul David Tripp goes up 125 stories or so, and he gets a look out over the city of Dubai, which is a very impressive city in itself. And this is what he says. How small the rest of the buildings looked. They looked unimpressive. I mean, hardly worthy of attention. Those, those tiny little buildings, those small buildings, he realized, were actually skyscrapers. Which in any other city, you'd have been in awe of. You'd want to visit. But I had caught a glimpse of the greatest, says Tripp, which put what had impressed me before into proper perspective. The Burj Khalifa today, the, the medieval spires of, of, of an earlier era, the cathedrals, the, the Mount Sinai in ancient times, these are signposts, they are symbols, they're, they're pointers toward the height of the holiness of God. That's what they are. And Paul Tripp concludes, if you, if you allow yourself to gaze upon God's holiness, you feel incredibly small and sinful, but it's a good thing, spiritually to have the assessments of your own grandeur decimated by glory, by God's glory, divine glory, because it reminds us of our need for God's grace and that we were made for perhaps an even more glorious kind of life than the one for which we may have settled. I think this is why God left them for 38 years at the foot of that mountain. He wanted its height and its holiness, his holiness, to work on the heart of his people before he took them any further. The New Testament scholar D.A. Carson points out that most of us don't casually drift toward holiness. We don't like sort of get to our day and go, oh, I became a lot more holy today. Isn't that nice? We don't drift toward holiness. We need to be met by it. We need to be confronted with it. We need to sit with it, ponder it for a very long time. Carson writes, apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness. They do not just naturally gravitate towards prayer, obedience, scripture, faith, delight in the Lord. We, we do drift towards some things. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance, he says. We drift toward disobedience and 
name it freedom. We drift towards superstition and sometimes call that faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and we call that relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves sometimes into thinking, oh, we've just escaped legalism. We slide toward godliness. We convince ourselves, oh, we've just been liberated. So to fuse the earlier analogies that we've been building up here, until we meet the mountain of God, until we get a glimpse of the height of his holiness, we may easily drift in our understanding of him, of other people, of our own self, and we may end up spending all our time building chicken coops on foundations that were made for skyscrapers. Your foundation, if it's his, him, is the foundation for a skyscraper. And so the question I guess I would ask you is, how high do you want your character to grow? How useful, how much usefulness to God's purposes do you want to go for in your life? And what sin or what pattern of settling have you accepted in your life? How have you gotten content with sort of a chicken coop sort of kind of life? That, that you want to put before God and say, Lord, transform that, please. Transform that. Let me just close this today with a, a brief story. In, in his book, The Grip of Grace, author Max Lucado tells the tale of a man who had been a closet slob for most of his life. He just could not comprehend the logic of neatness, writes Lucado. Why make up a bed if you're just going to sleep again in it tonight? Why put a lid on the toothpaste if you're going to take it off again in the morning? And then he got married. His wife was patient, says Lucado. She, she said she didn't, she didn't mind his habits as long as he, he didn't mind sleeping on the couch. And uh, he minded sleeping on the couch. So he began to work at changing. He, he, he joked that he enrolled in a 12-step program for slobs. He, he kidded that a physical therapist had finally helped him rediscover the muscles used for hanging up shirts and placing toilet paper in the holder, and that he, his nose had been reintroduced to the blessed smell of pine saw. And he worked at this. And by the time the in-laws came to visit, he was a new man. Or so it seemed, until there came the moment of truth. When his wife went out of town for a whole week. At first, says Lucado, he reverted to the old man. He figured he could be a slob for six days and then hurry up, clean up on the seventh day. But something strange happened something really weird happened. He found he could, he could no longer relax with dirty dishes in the sink or towels flung around the bathroom or clothes on the floor or sheets piled up like a mountain on the bed. Something had happened. Something had happened. 
what had happened? He had been exposed to a higher standard of living and loving and steady exposure to that had begun a change from the inside out. Had begun a process that theologians call sanctification, being made holy, more holy. On a higher scale still, this is what encounter with the character and nature of God does for us and in us. This is what it's all about. This, this relationship, this covenant we have, does things in us we couldn't do for ourselves. We couldn't, we couldn't work our way towards by our own willpower. It's what explains the changed character of people who truly walked with Jesus. It's, it's what explains why I'm no longer the guy you would never want to you would never want to hang out with me in an earlier season of my life if it hadn't been for what God had done in me over time. It's why we come here, by the way. It's why you and I come here to the foot of the mountain every week to gaze at his holiness to reestablish the depth of the relationship so that he can do in us what we can't do in ourselves. God is holy. We are not. But because God is also loving, he has got grace and truth and power to help us with this and to make us more and more like him. This is what Martin Luther woke up to one day Years and years ago in the 16th century, he was crawling up the steps of the cathedral. He was self-loathing. He was trying to prove by his efforts how holy he could become. And he realized the height of God and that, and that if it were not for a grace, my word's not his, greater than the gravity of his nature, there was no hope. But he knew a loving God. He saw the testimony to that God in Scripture. And as legend has it, he rolled over on his back on those steps. He let out a great belly laugh. He realized there is hope because of who God is. And he opened himself to that reforming influence. And that influence continued to move through history until it found you and me here in this place at the foot of the mountain again this day. Where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? We pick a few simple places where we lean toward him. In fact, I read someplace. There's a top 10 list for this. Like a list of 10 things, which like if we lean into, it helps us further toward him and toward our potential. And it just so happens that list is in the book of Exodus to which we will return next week. And I hope you'll come on back. Would you bow your head with me as we pray? Lord, thank you for your incredible word. Thank you for the 
way it witnesses to us of who you are, whose we are, and what is possible because of that. So receive our gratitude today for this time of fellowship. Continue your good work in us until we meet again. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.